Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we have Vice President of City Council, Annalisa Perea, on the show. Perea represents District 1 on the Fresno City Council and is a former member of the State Center of Community College District Board of Trustees. Annalisa was born and raised in Fresno and attended Fresno City College. She graduated with a BS in City and Regional Planning from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. She is an accredited city planner with the American Institute of Certified Planners. In our conversation, we covered community college issues, city planning, congestion problems, police and fire, health outcomes in the valley, margaritas, red tape production, and more. Please enjoy this fascinating conversation, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. Where do you like to eat in Fresno? So I'm a big foodie. My favorite places are India's Oven. We have a location in the Tower District. We have a location over on Ashland and Marks. Another favorite is Bonsai. I'm a big sushi lover. And so Bonsai in the Tower District is uh, definitely a, a number one go-to spot. But my newest favorite is El Patio. El Patio is south of Olive in the Tower District. And so my new thing is going there on either Wednesday nights or Thursday nights where they have mariachis. And so it's good. It's a nice vibe. It's beautiful out there on the patio. So good vibe, good music, good food. It's just kind of a trifecta of a win-win scenario. What would, what should someone order their first time there? Ooh, my favorite is the chicken mole. So if you can take a little bit of a, a spice, a little bit of a kick, if I can do it, anyone should be able to do it. So chicken mole is definitely the number one item on the menu. I think you should definitely try out. Is it like a rojo or a coloradito? What, what type? ¿Qué tipo? Uh, it's a black. It's a black. It's oh, okay. Mole. Yeah, mole they also negro. Have, they also have margarita plates too. Ooh. So it's kind of cool. You get to choose different flavors. I think last time my partner and I were there, we did like strawberry, the mango. So it's definitely just a great culmination of a lot of good things at El Patio. That sounds fantastic. I love having options. And if I can have multiple margaritas at once, that's a win for, for me, for sure. It's either a win or a lose, depending yeah. on how the night goes. <laughs> exactly. All right. So we're going to jump into some topics. I want to start by talking about community college stuff, because I know you spent some time on the board in our community college district. And I just have lots of things that I want to ask around that subject, starting with enrollment. As you probably know, enrollment's down since COVID. And a lot of community colleges across the country are struggling to get it back to pre-pandemic pandemic levels and increase it. So what do we need to do to help our community college institutions return to those pre-pandemic enrollment numbers? Yeah, that's a great question. And as you mentioned, you know, decline in, in, in enrollment is not a unique situation to the Central Valley. And so my time on the board, I was really proud that we did a lot to engage more of the community to market all of the benefits of community college and what it could do to change the lives of the people that live here. It is still one of the most affordable options out of poverty. 
this, our community colleges is an, an avenue to come and whether you're fresh out of high school and you're looking for that next step or whether you're 50, 60 years old and you're learning to upskill or to reskill and to get a different job, community college is definitely the, the way to do it. And so the district has done an amazing job getting the word out of all of the programs that we have to offer at the community college district. And so uh, no matter where you go in the city, you can probably see an advertisement of, you know, you belong here, you belong at Fresno City College, at Reedley, Clovis, Madera Community College, Oakhurst Community College. So whether it's on the side of a fax bus or a billboard or whether it's a mailer popping into your mailbox, the district has, has done a tremendous job just reaching out far and everywhere to make sure that folks know that we have this resource right here in our own backyard. And so I know they have increased a lot of outreach directly to high school students. But if you look at the data, what they saw is that while enrollment has, you know, it's it's been steadily increasing over time since the pandemic, we're still seeing that men of color, may, may, men and boys of color are not returning as quickly as women are. And so what the State Center District did is they they formed a, a commission to kind of research, okay, why aren't boys of color coming back to, to school? And so they're being very intentional with the data they have. They're, they're, they're targeting, they know who's not coming back to school and they're doing everything they can to wrap around these individuals and market directly to them to provide an easier pathway, easier access back into the classroom. And you mentioned ethnic groups, but I also want to talk about age categories. I just read an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education that talked about how community colleges are thinking about ways to target older adults, not just 18 to 25-year-olds, which is typically common. What what are some suggestions you'd have to better market towards working adults with maybe families and kids? Yeah, so what we do at the district, and I say we as if I'm still there, but I'm I feel like I'm a part of me is still there, my spirit's still there. But what the district has done a very good job at doing is being very intentional with the job needs of the community. So the district has done a lot to invest in providing the right kinds of training and skills to fill these good paying jobs. So whether that's the agricultural sector, the, the technology, the medical sector, um, what we're seeing is we need to fill job positions in the healthcare industry, in tech, in ag. And so these, these are high paying jobs too. And so we're being very intentional with what kind of skills are we providing to the community? And as I mentioned previously, a lot of these folks are looking to up skill. So these aren't the folks that are straight out of high school. These are individuals that maybe they lost their job during COVID. They realized how dispensable maybe their career actually was after all, unfortunately. And so they're needing to, to come back and to, and to learn a different trade. We have a lot of certificate programs specifically aligned with technical trades. So whether that's sheet metal, automotive science, welding, electrical, you don't need, you know, sometimes a four-year education is not for everyone. So maybe you're just looking to gain a new skill and to get back into the workforce because you're in dire need of supporting your household. And so the community college has done a good job advertising that we're more than just, you know, a transfer college, you know, you can come here, you can get your general education out of the way. Great. But if you're looking to just specific, specifically find a new skill, um, we're the place for you as well. Our new West Fresno campus out in West Fresno is going to be the biggest automobile 
tech program on this side of the Mississippi. And so this is where you can come to learn how to fix an electric vehicle, right? Because the times are changing. And so we're doing what we can to keep up with with the the changing times. Um, We are also one of the best colleges that you can come and get your, your, your pilot's license at. We have an amazing flight science program at Wrigley College. And so um, given that there's a nationwide shortage of commercial pilots, you know, State Center is is doing what we need to be doing to step up to the plate to fill that gap when it comes to jobs. So, yeah, they're doing an amazing job with, with getting that information out there and letting you know that if you are looking for a career change, you know, this is where you can come at an, an affordable rate to be able to do that. And I love that they're leaning into specific niches to try to, you know, market themselves as well as create a specialization that people will know the college for. Let's talk about leadership at the college level. 51% of community college presidents are over the age of 60. And then we're also experiencing what they're calling the gray tsunami, where classified administrative staff and faculty are retiring at high numbers. Do we need more traditionally the leadership kind of ladder is more internal than external. Do we need new outside leadership for our community colleges or is the system as it is currently working well? I'm extremely proud of the leadership that we currently have in place at the community college district. When I was board president, we hired Dr. Carol Goldsmith. She was the previous Fresno City College president. And I don't, you know, base it off of age, you know, but she is a a strong female leader, someone that's highly respected in our community. And she's also from the LGBTQ community. So I think she brings the right skill set to the table. She brings the right set of values to the table. And she's somebody that we typically don't see in these, you know, these leadership positions. You know, she's a strong female and we need more people that reflect the students. The students are predominantly female. And I think it's incredible that they can look to the leadership at the college and they see a female as the chancellor and they see a female as the president of Clovis Community College. And so I think the face of what leadership looks like is definitely progressing in the right direction. You see that in politics too, you know, politics historically have always been older white men. And what we're starting to see is the the face, the landscape of what politics looks like. You know, it's it's younger, it's a little bit more progressive. It's you know, people like me. I'm I'm a, a woman of color, LGBTQ. So I'm everything that you typically don't see when it comes to the face of politics. And so, uh, you know, I'm not the oldest. I'm not the youngest. But I think you know, it's not so much about my age as it is. Yeah, you know, I, I think we need to do more to bring more people like me that look like me, maybe that share my values into these positions of leadership. And along the way, as you mentioned, I'm only getting older. (laughs) And so it's important for me that as I'm getting up there in age, that I'm doing everything that I can to bring others up with me. And so that's why in my office, you know, they're, they're younger. I made a promise during my campaign that I would be appointing young people, people of color, women, especially into I would be appointing them onto my committees and my commissions and onto different boards. And so I think we all have a role to play when it comes to bringing up that next generation of leadership into different sectors, whether that's at the community college district level or whether that's in politics or whatever industry we're looking to diversify. 
Okay, let's pivot to talking about congestion issues. One of your platforms on your program when you ran for office was about Veterans Boulevard and reducing congestion. What are the current congestion rates in Fresno? How much time is added to people's commute because of congestion? That is a great question. I could guess, but I don't want to give you the wrong information, but I can definitely dig up that that number. But we talk a lot about the tale of two cities, and historically, that's always been Shaw Avenue. Do you live north of Shaw or do you live south of Shaw? For me, what I'm finding is the new tale of two cities is 99. You know, do you live east of the 99 or do you live on the west side? Because if you live on the west side, which is predominantly my district, District 1, but it also includes District 2 to the north and District 3 south of me, um, what we're finding is you're cut off from a lot of basic services. You know, your access to grocery stores is very limited. So your access to fresh fruit fruit and food is almost non-existent. Your access to medical offices and a restaurant is very limited, especially in my district. One of our only big sit-down restaurants was Yosemite Falls on Ashland in 99. And that closed, I believe, last year. Um, And that's going to be a dispensary coming up. And so while it's good that we're diversifying businesses west of the 99, you know, we still lack the basic necessities. And so folks still have to drive across the 99. They have to get to the other side to just do basic life essentials, whether it's getting groceries or going to the doctor's office. And so what this has done is it's created a lot of congestion. I have consistent meetings with our public works department a couple times a month to get updates on different projects. And what I will tell you is we have a lot of projects in the pipeline to fix this congestion issue. You talk to anyone in my district and they will tell you one of the worst intersections at on the west side of the 99 is at Shaw and Polk, or it's the Shaw and the 99 interchange. And so I, I, I tell, will tell you, the public works director will tell you that, you know, I bug him consistently for updates on where are we at with these improvement projects because while they're in the works, unfortunately, nothing happens overnight. And so um, I get consistent updates of where we are on any given day with all these projects. And I just had a town hall west of the 99. And so I guarantee you the most important thing they wanted to know out there was what are you doing to fix the traffic congestion? And so it was just very nice to be able to show them a map of all the improvements currently in the works. And one of those is Veterans Boulevard, which ultimately will connect Shaw all the way up to Herndon. So it's not the end-all be-all because if you see where we're growing, we're growing west of the 99. So Mm -hmm. we need to address traffic congestion issues today since we're only going to be adding more rooftops to that side of town in the next 10 years. So it's it's an ever-evolving issue. We have not done a good job keeping up with the, the level of increased traffic in that area. And so now we're having to kind of play catch up. Um, but as we're playing catch up, it's important to also plan for all this new influx of population that will be coming to that area as well. One of the common pushbacks against building new roads and widening freeways is kind of the ash after the widening of the 405. They spent about a billion dollars in 2015 to widen. I think it was about a 10 mile stretch. And what ultimately happened is people just redirected to that freeway because they knew now that there was an access and it was kind of like a returning to a state of equilibrium that happens when you create new roads. So how would you respond to critics and say, well, people just change their traffic patterns and we'll just create new spots of congestion. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the answer is always to expand roads. You know, I think we need to start being more creative with how we're moving people from point A to point B, um, which is why I'm a big supporter of high-speed rail. You know, I've ridden high-speed rail in other countries and it works. You know, in Europe, people are in cars, they're on buses or, or light rail or high-speed rail. So I think we need to get creative and think out of the box. You know, how are we expanding the fax system to west of the 99? What are we doing to plan for new population and new bus stops and new bus routes? You know, it's, it's are we, maybe we look into once again, you know, offering e-scooters and e-bikes as rideshare components. I don't think the answer is always, let's just expand freeways because then you're displacing people. We saw that with the 41, we saw that with the 180, you know, but the the truth is, is yes, we're transitioning from, you know, our diesel, auto, our gasoline vehicles to electric vehicles, but even electric vehicles need roads, you know, to, to be driven on. So roads are still an important piece of this conversation, whether it's securing money to fix potholes or finding money to widen lanes or to build out more roadways, you know, it's, it's all a piece of the puzzle. So while it's one piece, you know, that doesn't mean we need to ignore our bus system, or it doesn't mean we shouldn't be supporting high-speed rail. It's, it's all part of the equation at the end of the day. What's your kind of 20,000 foot perspective on development in Fresno in terms of expanding utilities and services, because it does add strain to our city services. Yeah, so a lot of the new development that comes online is they they pay for their own services. So what that looks like is they're annexed into what's called the community facilities district. And so new residential is usually taxed a lot higher than let's say, you know, me where I'm at in the tower district. Uh, because, you know, part of the reason why they're taxed higher is because they pay for additional services to serve that part of town. So it's it's all you know an, an equation, so to say, but yeah, it's it's expensive to expand services. It's, it's expensive to underground PG&E utility poles and and move it under underground. And so it's it's definitely you know as developers come in and build new homes, you know everybody's paying their fair share of it's called impact fees. Everyone pays impact fees to build new parks, to build new you know to pay for police services, increased fire services. So it's it's all, you know, we all have a role to play when it comes to expanding. And while the word sprawl, you know, is a dirty word, you know, the, the reality is, is we need more housing. The reason why a lot of the housing prices are going up and rent prices are going up, it's because we have a demand for housing. So the demand is there. I'm doing, we're, we're doing what we can to incentivize more infill construction right? But it's, there's not a lot of land left in fill to build single family homes. And while I think it's incredible and we should be building more condos and apartments and mixed use buildings, there's still a demand for single family homes. And so at the end of the day, where do you put them? So I think the city is doing a good job prioritizing construction of, of single family homes within our city limits. But at some point, you know, you, you look at to see where are our growth areas, where are where is there land to annex into the city um, to continue to meet our housing goals? Because right now, the city of Fresno, like so many other cities in the state of California, we're not meeting the, the housing goals that the state is putting on us. So we're while we're doing a good job building more homes, we're still 
at a huge drastic shortage of where we need to be based on our population growth. So we're, we're growing. It's just a matter of how do we do it in a way that's sustainable, where we're, as we're putting new rooftops here, we're also expanding fire services, police services, sewer, water, sidewalks, parks. You know, it's part of what makes a community a healthy environment. You know, you, you need everything. You need access to grocery stores. You need access to parks. So it's something that I'm thinking about all the time. I'm a city planner. That's my professional background. And so I'm just looking forward to bringing that level of expertise to my district as we're looking to how we grow, because we're growing, but how do we do it in a way that makes sense? And it's not all on local government either. I mean, the population needs to be more YIMBY than NIMBY and support, you know, big apartment complexes being put in neighborhoods because that's how we achieve the goals you're describing. And if, you know, communities come out against those things, it get, it puts a lot of pressure on local government to respond. And so I think there needs to be a collective consciousness lifting amongst all of us to support those kinds of projects. Um, let's right. pivot to talking about police and fire. So one of the big questions that a lot of people ask is, how do you determine for example, in the budget this year, the increase in fire and police staff for the city of Fresno was budgeted. What metric or tool do you use to determine how many more firefighters or how many more police officers you need? It seems a little vague to me. And so I was hoping you could clarify that. Yeah, I believe there is actually a, and I, I don't I don't think I'm making this up. I might be, but I'm almost positive there's a state law that requires you to have, or maybe it's within our city's general plan that requires you to have, I think it's like one police officer for every X number of people. So I want to say it's based on population, but more importantly, you know, it's for me, I I think about it as a response time. How long does it take to respond to a crime, an emergency? We just recently made our dispatchers the highest paid in the Central Valley. And so that's what we're doing to recruit people to fill these important positions. You know, it's tough to be a dispatcher. You're taking a number of calls on any given day, and you're the first point of contact when somebody is having the worst day of their life. And so the level of trauma that you are hearing all day, every day, it's high. And so these are tough positions. They they previously were not well paid. And so this is how we not just attract new talent to the, these important positions, but it's how we retain them as well. We did that recently. This was before I was on the council. This was last year, but the previous council made our police officers the highest paid in the Central Valley. And so what this did is as of, I believe it was last week, we now have the most number of police officers that we've ever had. And so what this means is we now have officers that are able to go back on on traffic control when previously they were taken off because we had such a deficit in, in police officers that our police chief was was you know being limited on resources had to get really creative with how he where he put you know officers on any given day or night. Um, we now have bicycle officers again in the tower district, and that was just a huge thing to to get back, and that was only given back to us recently. And so we now have the ability to be a lot more proactive with community policing rather than reactive. So the it's and it's interesting too because the police chief mentioned recently that based on statistics, based on the reduction in crime, based on the reduction in the number of murders this past year, Fresno is now the biggest 
city in the state of California, we're based on data, we're classified as the safest. So we are the safest, biggest city in the state of California. And that is, I in part due a lot to how the police chief has just been extremely creative with how he has allocated resources to serve different needs in our community. So it's, it's very interesting. I think he's done a great job. And now that we have more officers filling these positions, I think, you know, knock on wood, but I'm hoping that these trends continue to trend in the right direction. Yeah. And I think it is even for those who are more in the kind of defund the police or remove police officers, understand that a lot of communities are asking for more cops. They're not asking for less. I would dispute the simple attribution that, you know, we're now the safest city because of police force. Those things are heterogeneous and have many factors that could lead to crime reductions. It's not just police. But I do agree that it makes a lot of sense if that's what the community is asking for to, to meet their needs. Now, can you talk a little bit more about this new dispatch facility that was approved through the budget? I believe it was $10 million that's going to build a new dispatch facility. Where will that be yeah. and why do we need it? Yeah. And then just to hit on your, your last point too, I, I don't think the, you know, us being one of the safest cities in California is tied necessarily directly to an increase in police force because it's the increase has only recently happened, but right. the decrease in crime has been occurring over the last year. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, a lot in part because we have invested more in, in community uh, services, right? We're, we're keeping more kids off streets because we're, we, we're increasing after school programs. There's so much more that is that goes into that equation of reducing crime than just throwing police officers um, mm-hmm. at it. So you're you're definitely right. It's, it's definitely has you know it, it it's it's there's so much more to what it takes to reduce crime than just you know how many police officers do we have on the street. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if you've been down to the dispatch center, but it's a it's a depressing place. It's kind of in a basement. There's no I don't windows. even know where it is. Where is it? It's it's downtown Fresno. It's it's yeah, it's it's just a couple blocks away from City Hall. But it's it's a very depressing place to be given the the level of trauma that these dispatchers are just constantly up against in terms of the, the severity of the calls they get. And so um I'm just really looking forward to finally doing right by them, by giving them a state-of-the-art dispatch center. It's not just an investment in our our employees, but it's an investment in everyone. Because if everyone's able to do their job more effectively, then that impacts all of us for the better. That means that we are going to be seeing an an increase in, you know, just efficiency in how we respond to emergencies. Yeah. I remember I was talking to a public defender and an ADA who were both describing to me clients that had been on the phone with 911 and just sitting there listening to a dial tone for 10 minutes while, mm-hmm. you know, they processed through the number of calls that they were getting. And that's yeah. just, that's just unacceptable. And everyone knows that it's unacceptable. So I do appreciate that the city council has stepped up and done that and approved mm-hmm. the budget with those prescriptions in there to enhance our dispatch services. Let's talk a little bit about firefighters. Why should firefighters be answering medical calls and not EMTs? Yeah, so so firefighters, well, right now, I believe, let's say there's an emergency where someone is not breathing. I, I understand that they send not just EMT, but a firefighter apparatus there as well. Right now, I I, I don't want to give you the wrong answer. I don't, I don't know why they send a fire truck there as well, but I know I've, I've been on a ride along with both Fresno fire and Fresno American ambulance. And so there's been different scenarios where one will get called to a call, but you know, someone else may not. 
I don't know the science or the art behind, you know, who gets dispatched to what call. So I don't want to make something up and, and be totally off target. But it, it it's interesting. You know, I, I was at a call where it was a it was a vehicle that was T-boned with a diesel truck. And so I'm I'm riding along with the American ambulance. And so we show up there. And Hellfire, this is in the county, so Hellfire was the first on scene. They were there to, and, and they had the saws, you know, they extracted the person out of the vehicle. And unfortunately, you know, they were, they had passed, but, you know, they were still the first one on site just to be able to get, just get the pinned person out of the car. So I'd have to imagine that when you show up to an emergency site, you don't know exactly what you're stepping into. And so in that case, you know, having Hellfire on the scene, they were the first ones there to provide, you know, CPR. They were the first ones there to just simply get the person out of the car to begin with. But then it was the EMT and the paramedic that provided additional medical services. And then it was eventually the paramedic that called it off and just said, this is, you know, the, the end right here. We're going to stop. So, yeah, I, I don't know the science behind, you know, who gets sent where, when, but I just have to imagine that it's almost for the best when you show up blindly in some cases to a situation where you just don't know what to expect once you, once you're on site of an emergency. And it's complicated. You don't want services, especially very expensive government services to be duplicated, but you're also right that there's some uncertainty when you get an emergency call, exactly what we'll need. And I don't want to trust an EMT who sadly they're dramatically underpaid in the United States are paid just, just pitiful wages for what they do on a daily basis, kind of like what you were talking about with dispatchers needing a serious pay raise given the trauma of their job. But at the same time, you know, it 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 is something that I I I wonder if there is a call at a home and someone's not responsive at a house, you know, why fire needs to be there. But again, these are big medical questions that are kind of outside of our scope and that are large societal problems. I was just curious if you had a perspective on that. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's let's talk about um, fire prevention since we're on fire. There's been two large cities that have floated ideas of mandatory fire sprinklers in older buildings, both Philadelphia and New York. Neither of those, I think, have passed due to a lot of lobbying from uh, apartment complex managers, associations, and groups like that because it would be really expensive. But at the same time, that seems like it would be a reduction in structural fires that happen in cities. What do you think about something like a mandatory fire sprinkler legislation or something more preventative? Because it feels like when you hire new firefighters, you're signing up for long term. You know, I mean, firefighter pensions are one of the one of the reasons we have budgetary issues in California. So how do how do you think about preventative versus reactive measures in, in terms of structural fires? Yeah, I, I think preventative measures, while it might cost more initially, it's an investment, right? To where I think you could reap long term monetary benefits down the road and quite possibly save lives down the road too. I heard from, from one of our firefighters not too long ago that the number one cause of fires here in our city comes from vacant buildings. And usually these are the vacant buildings that are boarded up. And, you know, we have, unfortunately, unhoused folks that are looking for shelter during the winter months and or they're no matter what time of the year, you know, they might be starting a fire maybe to cook food. But either way, you know, unfortunately, the fires are uncontained and they go up in flames. And we just had a big fire here in the tower district this past weekend where a fire was started and it just caught the whole building on fire. 
And so in, in cases like that, you know, that's, is that a fire preventative measure, you know, or it kind of seems like even if there were a requirement to have them in there, there's, there's so many vacant buildings that we'd have to think, you know, are we requiring all the vacant buildings to, to be, you know, to have these fire apparatuses installed in them as well. I know new buildings, I believe there's a new building requirement under the California building code, but you're right. You know, how do we retrofit existing buildings to, to be more preventative rather than reactive? Right now I'm having the same issue with charging stations. You know, it's easier to mandate charging stations for electric vehicles in new developments, but how do you, how do you install them in existing developments? Because it's a lot more expensive to extend power into an, an environment that's already all built out. And so that's, you know, this issue of how do we, as we plan for growth, how do we take care and keep up with these changing times in our current older neighborhoods too? Um, I like that idea. I think it's a good idea. I would, I would just have to look into it more before I could 100% get behind it. But I think it's just always smarter to, to be preventative rather than be reactive down the road, which could co- end up costing us more down the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's pivot to talking a little bit about health in our city and county. So Alyssa Kent, who's the director of San Joaquin Valley Public Health Consortium, she was quoted in an interview saying that one of the big issues in terms of increasing health outcomes was the fact that we don't have a medical school in the vicinity. And so medical professionals are less likely to be in the area a la we have less doctors available. And just in the same way that we were talking about the gray tsunami in community colleges, uh, there are a lot of doctors who are set to retire, particularly in our county. I think it's almost up to a third are, are set to retire in the next 10 years. And so the question becomes, how do, how do we in, attract new doctors? And do you believe that it's a medical school that needs to be in the area to really attract them? Or are there other pull factors that we have at our disposal? No, I think a medical school is exactly what the Central Valley needs. Um, we can only do what we can to attract outside talent. But if we, if our talent is homegrown to begin with, people stay. People take ownership of the Central Valley when you, you live here, you work here, you educate yourself here, you typically stay here is what we're finding. And so, you know, we, we are seeing a, a drastic need for, for medical talent here. And with the closure of the Madera Hospital, late last year and with other hospitals here in the Central Valley on the brink of closing, Fresno's been taken on a big burden of these, of, you know, these, these hospital closures. And so it's only going to get worse if we don't start doing things differently. I know our state leaders are doing everything within their power to open up the Madeira Hospital. They're doing everything within their power to make sure that they're stopping other hospitals from possibly closing. Um, because it has a ripple effect and, and it's unfortunately it's hitting us the hardest in Fresno because we take, you know, we, we're taking on these, these patients. It's, 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 you know, thank God we have very ethical doctors that are not turning away patients. And so it's, it's tough. It's only going to get worse. And I think bringing a medical school to the Valley is exactly what we need. I think Pasta has done a good job building that pathway to bring the school here. I want to give kudos also to former assembly member, Adam Gray. Current assembly member Joaquin Arambula, I, I feel like we have the right people in office or soon to be in office that understand the needs of the valley. And, and just as ag is, you know, is and water are, are just as important economic drivers here for the valley, 
healthcare. You know, it, it's a matter of a life or death situation. And so we have leaders that understand the needs, they have a good pulse on the gaps that need to be filled. And I think the, the right people are doing the right things to hopefully bring us a medical school at some point. But no, 100%, this is something that we desperately need. We need the talent here. We have all of our travel nurses that have been sent back home. You know, now that COVID is done, Over. I guess I'll say that with your quotes. <laughs> yeah, done. there's quotation marks on the screen. Yep. Quotation marks. It, it's, you know, we're, we're starting to see a lot of brain drain leave the valley. And so unfortunately we need to start growing it here. Otherwise, you know, we can't just expect everyone to come to the valley. So yeah, a lot, a lot of work to be done, but medical schools is definitely something that we could all benefit from here. And I, I thought it was so great that you brought up the Madera hospital. Cause I don't think people in Fresno necessarily think about the closing of the hospital and adjacent communities affecting their quality of care, but it will, because where do you think those people are going? And I was talking to someone who's involved with the medical community here in Madera, and they were saying that there's only four ambulances for the city of Madera currently operating. And then if you have an emergency call, um, you're being driven from Madera to Fresno, which is a, is a long drive. And so there's going to be a lot of health outcomes from the closing of this hospital. So I hope our state officials can figure out how to revive it. So let me ask you this. This is kind of like a, a kind of more speculative question. You know, there's a lot of environmental harms with living in the Central Valley. When I moved here from Southern California a few years ago, I had spent my adolescent years in in the Central Valley, but had lived in San Francisco and Los Angeles since then. And when I moved back, my allergies came back like a storm. And there was one week where I was telling my partner, maybe we need to move back to LA because I can't breathe out of one of my nostrils and I haven't been able to breathe for six weeks. And that's just a simple, like almost silly issue. People have mm -hmm. some serious health issues from yeah. living in the Central Valley. So if you are the health czar of the Central Valley, what environmental health issue would you want to tackle in your career as a public servant? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I love being a city planner. I've been a planner for about 12 years now. It all comes down to how do we create what we call our term that we call them is complete neighborhoods. I live in the tower district. So I live in a complete neighborhood where I can walk out my front door. I can walk to go to tower market, get groceries. I can walk to the tower theater, go see a movie. I can walk to restaurants, bars, it, almost anything I could ever want. <laughs> it's within walking distance of me. And so I'm doing my part to reduce my carbon footprint by walking as much as I can in my day-to-day -day activities. I'm also a bicyclist. Um, so I'm very, I'm, I'm very much so looking for different ways to invest. You know, we talked about it earlier in alternative modes of transportation. How do we clean our air? How do we get people out of vehicles? How do we get more people walking and biking? And how do we incentivize EV cars and not just vehicles, but bikes and electric scooters? We're, we're we have a record investment going into bicycle infrastructure. Um, we are building out and replacing sidewalks every single day in, in my district. And so these are just investments the city is making to encourage people to walk more, to bike more. And so for me, transportation is one of the biggest contributors to poor air quality. And so I'm going to be doing everything within my power um, as a council member to make sure that we are investing more, you know, into encouraging people to bike more, encouraging them to walk more, 
But a lot of that has to do with how we build out our city. Let's say on the west side, are we building complete neighborhoods on the west side? Or are we just contributing more and more to traffic congestion and bad air quality? So it's all, it's all part of the mix, but just creating more complete neighborhoods, more walkable neighborhoods, incentivizing more infill development. So making sure we're, we're building more apartments and at higher densities infill. I'm working on a tax amendment right now to make it permitted by right to convert vacant office buildings to residential uses. And I think we're going to start to see an apocalypse of more vacant offices, you know, as we start to see that we can work remote more, you know, because of the pandemic. So we're going to give people the ability and the tools. We're cutting the red tape to make it easier to convert old offices to residential projects. I'm also making it easier to build multifamily residential in mixed use. So, so we're cutting the red tape. We're making it permitted by right, ministerial. And really just doing what we can as city officials to make it as easy as possible for the private sector to then want to come in and build more housing infill, build more multifamily housing, build more vertical because we can only build horizontal, you know, for, for so long before we just run out of land. Yeah. And you actually brought up something that I wanted to ask you in terms about government projects. You know, there's a lot of factors that make government projects difficult. Complexity, obviously, the unfortunate but understandable preference towards working with businesses that have size and scale, payments delays, regulatory compliance issues, contracts changes, audits, investigations. So in terms of all that red tape, and that's just a giant role, where, where do you think is the most strategic place we can reduce or make that process just a little bit more efficient? Yeah, so I think the main difference is whether something is deemed discretionary versus ministerial. If something is ministerial, then it's processed at a reduced rate. There's a lot of costs typically associated with a discretionary project that you don't have to deal with ministerially. Serial projects are not subject to CEQA, so there's it's not that we don't do an environmental analysis. It's just, you know, you don't have to do additional environmental analysis for projects. So you're just subject to whatever the general plan CEQA document tells you you're subject to. So there's a lot of red tape that can be cut. When you take away the discretion aspect of a project and you allow it to be ministerial permitted by right, it's processed faster. There's less steps and hoops people have to jump through. That's why we're taking this text amendment to make housing permitted by right, but processed ministerially, because it will no longer be processed discretionary. It'll allow housing projects to be built faster and quicker. It's what other cities are doing. Fresno's a little bit behind to this ball game, but it's been great working with the mayor's administration on this because they understand where the red tape is. And so now it's our turn at the council level to just cut down the red tape put up the right policies in place and just make sure that we're just being as efficient and effective as possible uh, to bring more housing online faster. Okay. One more subject before we close with books, but I'm going to do something I like to do from time to time, which is play devil's advocate. I read a book called 10% Less Democracy. It's by a political scientist named Garrett Jones. And essentially what he argues is 
that local government officials are increasing in competence and that sometimes democratic participation is less important for getting things done in cities. Do you agree with this hypothesis or do you think that community engagement still plays a crucial part in getting things done in cities? Yeah, no, I'm I'm a firm believer that the community should be involved at every decision. I have people reach out to me on any given day of the week, at any time of the day, through any avenue of ways to reach me, whether that's through social media or text message or phone call or email. Sometimes people call me directly or they call my office, but folks have an opinion on every single topic that we touch at the city. And that's what I love, right? Because while I am just the face in some cases um, of District 1, it's it's the people that I serve that really drive my decision-making. And so I'm very appreciative for everyone that reaches out. I'm currently holding a series of town halls myself because it's important for me to bring City Hall to the people. So I just held my first town hall west of the 99. The next one is going to be a Tower District Historical Fresno High um, town hall. And then we have a couple others scheduled in different parts of the district. But it's important that I can't expect everyone to be able to show up to a council meeting on any given Thursday and, and participate. And so for me, it's about opening up the door of City Hall to them. And so I'm bringing my office, my staff to different parts of the district. We actually started something called We Serve You, which is where on any given day of the week, my staff and I will go out, we'll pick a different neighborhood and we will go canvassing, kind of similar to what you do during a campaign, go door to door, but we're not stopping that. So now that we're in office, we're continuing to go door to door and we're introducing ourselves we're the new council member. This is, you know, my team. And what can we do for you today? Do you need a sidewalk fix? Do you need your tree trimmed? Are you having noise issues in your neighborhood? Are you having cat issues in your neighborhood? Or it is, you know, we are here to serve you. So it goes back to being proactive rather than reactive. You know, what I want to be known for is somebody that just takes a challenge on, you know, I don't wait for people to come and complain to me all the time. We will come to you and just be proactive in addressing our neighborhood needs. And so I think that's something that's lost sometimes in government is once people get elected, they sort of forget who elected them in the first place. And so I want my constituents to know that, yes, I'm elected. I'm appreciative for your support. And we are going to continue to be there for you every single day, whether it's you coming to us or us coming directly to you on your doorstep. So so many different needs in the city, and I have hired the best staff possible to help me address such an array of, of needs we have here in the city. So you were talking about how you can help people that are living in your particular area of town. If there's one issue you wish citizens in Fresno were more active on by contributing themselves, you know, the sense of the common good, what would you, what would you hope that people would be more active in in this city? And giving back. I, I think the easiest thing people can do is don't trash Fresno. It's astonishing how many people will still throw things out their car windows. They're walking, they're throwing their cigarette butts on the ground in the gutters. We have cleanup, you know, events just about every month in our district. It's, it's very humbling to go and pick up someone else's trash. You know, it just really instills a sense of ownership in, in me um, I always bring my nieces, my nephews, you know, with me to these trash cleanups because I want that sense 
of community pride and ownership instilled in them at the youngest age possible because the young the, the younger we can teach people to have pride in your city and to keep it clean, the better outcome for all of us. So if there's one thing that we can all do today is stop trashing Fresno. That's why our freeways look like they do. You know, we're throwing trash out of our windows and it's just, it's not good for anyone. It becomes a public health issue at the end of the day. So just doing our part to keep our city clean, I think is the easiest thing a citizen can do for their city. And it's a role that we all need to play. Okay. Let's close with my favorite topic, which is book recommendations. What are two to three books you'd recommend to the listeners? Oh, my, one of my favorite books is called Extreme Ownership. It's a leadership style book. I like leadership books, but 48 Laws of Power. I, I love that book. It just, it's just rules to live by and you can apply them to different aspects of your life, whether you're political or not. Do you um, wake up at 4.30 with Jocko? I, you know what? I, I have before. Okay. It was actually a, a required reading, which I will be forever grateful that I was forced to read this book, but I recommend it to everyone. I love it. But I, my pleasure reading, I just finished a book called I Am Not Broken. And it follows the story of a, a boy in, from San Diego, from Barrio Logan, who was, this is a trigger, trigger word warning, um, but was, was pimped out as a young boy. And so it kind of follows his journey, just having gone through that and the trauma of just childhood neglect growing up and it follows him through his teenage years and then as an adult. And it just kind of follows his journey of being homeless, um, being pimped out. And then finally, how he just overcomes all of that. And it's just an incredible story of survival when you have literally everything thrown against you, you know, how this one individual was able to kind of make it out of all of that and be just thriving at the very end. I love, you know, success stories like that. And so it's called, I am not broken. It's incredible. Okay. Last, what, what's the project that you're working on next you're most excited about and where can people find more about the work you're doing online? Yeah. Good question. So right now, I would say the, the biggest project that I'm working on right now, I'll be bringing it to the next council meeting. So next week, it's to incentivize more businesses to open up in the Tower District and in West of the 99 in my district. So right now, I love the Tower. It's my home. It's where I might always forever live. But we have a lot of bars and, and things catered towards adults. And so I'm trying to get the Tower District to be a place that's more just family-oriented, family-friendly. So we're taking an, an incentive package to attract more businesses, just to diversify the kind of businesses we have here in the Tower District and west of the 99. For people to stay up to date with the latest, you know, I follow me on Instagram. I believe my handle is councilmember underscore Perea. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And last but not least, we have the Tower District Farmers Market opening up. The grand opening is this Thursday. And so just very excited. That's going to be every Thursday in the Tower District from 5 to 9 p.m. So come out. It's going to be family friendly, fresh food, local produce, crafts, games, live music. It's going to be an amazing attribute for not just the Tower District community, but the entire city of Fresno. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This was really enlightening. And I think listeners learned a lot as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.